Chapter Nine of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Nine. Sufferings of the Forlorn Hope Resort to Human Flesh Camp of Death Boots Crisped and Eaten Deer Killed Indian Ranchiera The White Man's Home at Last Although we were so meagerly informed, it is well that my readers should, at this point, become familiar with the experience of the expedition known as the forlorn hope, and also the various measures taken for our relief when our precarious condition was made known to the good people of California. It will be remembered that the forlorn hope was the party of fifteen which, as John Baptiste reported to us, made the last unaided attempt to cross the mountains. Words cannot picture, nor mind conceive, more torturing hardships and privations that were endured by that little band on its way to the settlement. It left the camp on the 16th of December, with scant rations for six days, hoping in that time to force its way to Bear Valley and there find game. But the storms which had been so pitiless at the mountain camps followed the unprotected refugees with seemingly fiendish fury. After the first day from camp, its members could no longer keep together on their marches. The stronger broke the trail, and the rest followed to night camp as best they could. On the third day, Stanton's sight failed, and he begged piteously to be led. But, soon realizing the heart-rending plight of his companions, he uncomplainingly submitted to his fate. Three successive nights, he staggered into camp long after the others had finished their stinted meal. Always he was shivering from cold, sometimes wet with sleet and rain. It is recorded that at no time had the party allowed more than an ounce of food per meal to the individual, yet the rations gave out on the night of the 22nd while they were still in a wilderness of snow peaks. Mr. Eddy only was better provided and looking over his pack that morning for the purpose of throwing away any useless article, he unexpectedly found a small bag containing about a half pound of dried bear meat. Fastened to the meat was a penciled note from his wife begging him to save the hidden treasure until his hour of direst need, since it might then be the means of saving his life. The note was signed, Your Own Dear Eleanor. With tenderest emotion, he slipped the food back, resolving to do the dear one's bidding, trusting that she and their children might live until he should return for them. The following morning, while the others were preparing to leave camp, Stanton sat beside the smoldering fire smoking his pipe. When ready to go forth, they asked him if he was coming, and he replied, Yes, I am coming soon. Those were his parting words to his friends, and his greeting to the angel of death. He never left that fireside, 
and his companions were too feeble to return for him when they found he did not come into camp. Twenty-four hours later, the members of that hapless little band threw themselves upon the desolate waste of snow to ponder the problems of life and death, to search each other's face for answer to the question their lips durst not frame. Fathers who had left their families and mothers who had left their babes wanted to go back and die with them, if die they must. But Mr. Eddy and the Indians, those who had crossed the range with Stanton, declared that they would push on to the settlement. Then Mary Graves, in whose young heart were still whisperings of hope, courageously said, I too will go on, for to go back and hear the cries of hunger from my little brothers and sisters is more than I can stand. I shall go as far as I can, let the consequences be what they may. W. F. Graves, her father, would not let his daughter proceed alone, and finally all decided to make a final, supreme effort. Yet, think of it, they were without one morsel of food. Even the wind seemed to hold its breath as the suggestion was made that, were one to die, the rest might live. Then the suggestion was made that lots be cast, and whoever drew the longest slip should be the sacrifice. Mr. Eddy endorsed the plan. Despite opposition from Mr. Foster and others, the slips of paper were prepared, and great-hearted Patrick Dolan drew the fatal slip. Patrick Dolan, who had come away from camp that his famishing friends might prolong their lives by means of the small stock of food which he had to leave. Harm a hair of that good man's head? Not a soul of that starving band would do it. Mr. Eddy then proposed that they resume their journey as best they could until death should claim a victim. All acquiesced. Slowly rising to their feet, they managed to stagger and to crawl forward about three miles to a tree which furnished fuel for their Christmas fire. It was kindled with great difficulty, for in cutting the boughs, the hatchet blade flew off the handle and for a time was lost deep in snow. Meanwhile, every puff of wind was laden with killing frost, and in sight of that glowing fire, Antonio froze to death. Mr. Graves, who was also breathing heavily, when told by Mr. Eddy that he was dying, replied that he did not care. He, however, called his daughters, Mrs. Fostick and Mary Graves, to him, and by his parting injunctions showed that he was still able to realize keenly the dangers that beset them. Remembering how their faces had paled at the suggestion of using human flesh for food, he admonished them to put aside the natural repugnance which stood between them and the possibility of life. He commanded them to banish sentiment and instinctive loathing, and think only of their starving mother, brothers, and sisters whom they had left in camp, and avail themselves of every means in their power to rescue them. He begged that his body be used to sustain the famishing, and bidding each farewell, his spirit left its bruised and worn tenement before half the troubles of the night were past. About ten o'clock, pelting hail, followed by snow on the wings of a tornado, 
swept every spark of fire from those shivering mortals, whose voices now mingled with the shrieking wind, calling to heaven for relief. Mr. Eddy, knowing that all would freeze to death in the darkness if allowed to remain exposed, succeeded after many efforts in getting them close together between their blankets where the snow covered them. With the early morning, Patrick Dolan became delirious and left camp. He was brought back with difficulty and forcibly kept under cover until late in the day when he sank into a stupor, whence he passed gently into that sleep which knows no waking. The crucial hour had come. Food lay before the starving, yet every eye turned from it, and every hand dropped irresolute. Another night of agony passed, during which Lemuel Murphy became delirious and called long and loud for food, but the cold was so intense that it kept all under their blankets until four o'clock in the afternoon, when Mr. Eddy succeeded in getting a fire in the trunk of a large pine tree, whereupon his companions, instead of seeking food, crept forth and broke off low branches, put them down before the fire, and laid their attenuated forms upon them. The flames leaped up the trunk and burned off dead boughs so that they dropped on the snow about them. But the unfortunates were too weak and too indifferent to fear the burning brands. Mr. Eddy now fed his waning strength on shreds of his concealed bear meat, hoping that he might survive to save the giver. The rest in camp could scarcely walk by the 28th, and their sensations of hunger were diminishing. This condition forebode delirium and death, unless stayed by the only means at hand. It was in very truth a pitiful alternative offered to the sufferers. With sickening anguish the first morsels were prepared and given to Lemuel Murphy. But for him they were too late. Not one touched flesh of kindred body. Nor was there need of restraining hand or warning voice to gauge the small quantity which safety prescribed to break the fast of the starving. Death would have been preferable to that awful meal, had relentless fate not said, Take, eat that ye may live, eat lest ye go mad, and leave your work undone. All but the Indians obeyed the mandate, and were strengthened and reconciled to prepare the remaining flesh to sustain them a few days longer on their journey. Hitherto the wanderers had been guided partly by the fitful sun, partly by Louis and Salvador, the Indians who had come with Stanton from Sutter's Fort. In the morning, however, when they were ready to leave that spot, which was thereafter known as the Camp of Death, Salvador, who could speak a little English, insisted that he and Louis were lost, and therefore unable to guide them farther. Nevertheless, the party at once set out and traveled instinctively until evening. The following morning they wrapped pieces of blanket around their cracked and swollen feet, and again struggled onward until late in the afternoon, when they encamped on a high ridge. There they saw beyond, in the distance, a wide plain which they believed to be the Sacramento Valley. This imaginary glimpse of distant lowland gave them a peaceful sleep. The entire day of December 31st was spent in crossing a canyon, 
and every footstep left its trace of blood in the snow. When they next encamped, Mr. Eddy saw that poor Jay Fostick was failing, and he begged him to summon up all his courage and energy in order to reach the promised land, now so near. They were again without food, and William Foster, whose mind had become imbalanced by the long fast, was ready to kill Mrs. McCutcheon or Miss Graves. Mr. Eddy confronted and intimidated the crazed sufferer, who next threatened the Indian guides, and would have carried out his threat then, had Mr. Eddy not secretly warned them against danger and urged them to flee. But nothing could save the Indians from Foster's insane passion later, when he found them on the trail in an unconscious and dying condition. January 1, 1847, was, to the little band of eight, a day of less distressing trials. Its members resumed travel early, braced by unswerving willpower. They stopped at midday and revived strength by eating the toasted strings of their snowshoes. Mr. Eddy also ate his worn-out moccasins, and all felt a renewal of hope upon seeing before them an easier grade which led to night camp where the snow was only six feet in depth. Soothed by a milder temperature, they resumed their march earlier next morning and descended to where the snow was but three feet deep. There they built their campfire and slightly crisped the leather of a pair of old boots and a pair of shoes which constituted their evening meal and was the last of their effects available as food. An extraordinary effort on the third day of the new year brought them to bare ground between patches of snow. They were still astray among the western foothills of the Sierras, and sat by a fire under an oak tree all night, enduring hunger that was almost maddening. Jay Fostick was sinking rapidly, and Mr. Eddy resolved to take the gun and steal away from camp at dawn. But his conscience smote him and he finally gave the others a hint of his intention of going in search of game, and of not returning unless successful. Not a moving creature nor a creeping thing had crossed the trail on their jury thither, but the open country before them, and minor marks well known to hunters, had caught Mr. Eddy's eye and strengthened his determination. Mrs. Pike, in dread and fear of the result, threw her arms about Mr. Eddy's neck, and implored him not to leave them, and the others mingled their entreaties and protestations with hers. In silence he took his gun to go alone. Then Mary Graves declared that she would keep up with him, and without heeding further opposition the two set out. A short distance from camp they stopped at a place where a deer had recently lain. With a thrill of emotion too intense for words, with a prayer in his heart too fervent for utterance, Mr. Eddy turned his tearful eyes toward Mary and saw her weeping like a child. A moment later, that man and that woman who had once said that they knew not how to pray were kneeling beside that newly found track, pleading in broken accents to the giver of all life for a manifestation of his power to save their starving band. Long-restrained tears were still streaming down the cheeks of both, and soothing their anxious hearts 
as they arose to go in pursuit of the deer. J.Q. Thornton says, They had not proceeded far before they saw a large buck about eighty yards distant. Mr. Eddy raised his rifle and for some time tried to bring it to bear upon the deer, but such was his extreme weakness that he could not. He breathed a little, changed his manner of holding the gun, and made another effort. Again his weakness prevented him from being able to hold upon it. He heard a low, suppressed sobbing behind him, and turning around saw Mary Graves weeping in great agitation, her head bowed and her hands upon her face. Alarmed lest she should cause the deer to run, Mr. Eddy begged her to be quiet, which she was, after exclaiming, Oh, I am afraid you will not kill it. He brought the gun to his face the third time, and elevated the muzzle above the deer, let it descend until he saw the animal through the sight, when the rifle cracked. Mary immediately wept aloud, exclaiming, Oh, merciful God, you have missed it! Mr. Eddy assured her that he had not, that the rifle was upon it the moment of firing, and that, in addition to this, the animal had dropped its tail between its legs, which this animal always does when wounded. His belief was speedily confirmed. The deer ran a short distance, then fell, and the two eager watchers hastened to it as fast as their weakened condition would allow. Mr. Eddy cut the throat of the expiring beast with his pocket-knife, and he and his companion knelt down and drank the warm blood that flowed from the wound. The excitement of getting that blessed food and the strength it imparted produced a helpful reaction and enabled them to sit down in peace to rest a while before attempting to roll their treasure to the tree nearby, where they built a fire and prepared the entrails. Mr. Eddy fired several shots after dark, so that the others might know that he had not abandoned them. Meanwhile, Mr. and Mrs. Foster, Mrs. McCutcheon, and Mrs. Pike had moved forward and made their camp halfway between Mr. Eddy's new one and that of the previous night. Mr. Fostick, however, being too weak to rise, remained at the first camp. His devoted wife pillowed his head upon her lap, and prayed that death would call them away together. Mr. Thornton continues. The sufferer had heard the crack of Mr. Eddy's rifle at the time he killed the deer, and said, feebly, There, Eddy has killed a deer. Now, if I can only get to him, I shall live. But in the stillness of that cold, dark night, J. Fostick's spirit fled alone. His wife wrapped their only blanket about his body, and lay down on the ground beside him, hoping to freeze to death. The morning dawned bright, the sun came out, and the lone widow rose, kissed the face of her dead, and, with a small bundle in her hand, started to join Mr. Eddy. She passed a hunger-crazed man on the way from the middle camp, going to hers, and her heart grew sick, for she knew that her loved one's body would not be spared for burial rites. She found Mr. Eddy drying his deer meat before the fire, and later saw him divide it, so that each of his companions in the camps should have an equal share. The seven survivors, each with his portion of venison, resumed travel on the sixth, and continued in the foothills a number of days, crawling up the ascents, sliding down the steeps, 
often harassed by fears of becoming lost near the goal, yet unaware that they were astray. The venison had been consumed. Hope had almost died in the heart of the bravest, when, at the close of the day on the 10th of January, twenty-five days from the date of leaving Donner Lake, they saw an Indian village at the edge of a thicket they were approaching. As the sufferers staggered forward, the Indians were overwhelmed at the sight of their misery. The warriors gazed in stolid silence. The squaws wrung their hands and wept aloud. The larger children hid themselves, and the little ones clung to their mothers in fear. The first sense of horror having passed, those dusky mothers fed the unfortunates. Some brought them unground acorns to eat, while others mixed the meal into cakes and offered them as fast as they could cook them on the heated stones. All except Mr. Eddy were strengthened by the food. It sickened him, and he resorted to green grass boiled in water. The next morning the chief sent his runners to other rancheras en route to the settlement, telling his people of the distress of the pale faces who were coming toward them and who would need food. When the forlorn hope was ready to move on, the chief led the way, and an Indian walked on either side of each sufferer supporting and helping the unsteady feet. At each ranchiera the party was put in charge of a new leader and fresh supporters. On the 17th, the chief, with much difficulty, procured for Mr. Eddy a gill of pine nuts, which the latter found so nutritious that the following morning, on resuming travel, he was able to walk without support. They had proceeded less than a mile when his companions sank to the ground completely unnerved. They had suddenly given up and were willing to die. The Indians appeared greatly perplexed, and Mr. Eddy shook with sickening fear. Was his great effort to come to naught? Should his wife and babes die while he stood guard over those who would no longer help themselves? No, he would push ahead and see what he yet could do. The old chief sent an Indian with him as a guide and support. Relieved of the sight and personal responsibility of his enfeebled companions, Mr. Eddy felt a renewal of strength and determination. He pressed onward, scarcely heeding his dusky guide. At the end of five miles they met another Indian, and Mr. Eddy, now conscious that his feet were giving out, promised the stranger tobacco, if he would go with them and help to lead him to the white man's house. And so that long, desperate struggle for life, and for the sake of loved ones, ended an hour before sunset, when Mr. Eddy, leaning heavily upon the Indians, halted before the door of Colonel M. D. Ritchie's home, thirty-five miles from Sutter's Fort. The first to meet him was the daughter of the house, whom he asked for bread. Thornton says, She looked at him, burst out crying, and took hold of him to assist him into the room. He was immediately placed in bed, in which he lay unable to turn his body during four days. In a very short time he had food brought to him by Mrs. Ritchie, who sobbed as she fed the miserable and frightful being before her. Shortly Harriet, the daughter, had carried the news from house to house in the neighborhood, and horses were running at full speed from place to place until all preparations were made for taking relief to those 
whom Mr. Eddy had left in the morning. William Johnson, John Howell, John Rhodes, Mr. Kaiser, Mr. Sager, Racine Tucker, and Joseph Varro assembled at Mr. Ritchie's immediately. The females collected the bread they had, with tea, sugar, and coffee, amounting to as much as four men could carry. Howell, Rhodes, Sagur, and Tucker started at once, on foot, with the Indians as guides, and arrived at camp, between fifteen and eighteen miles distant, at midnight. Mr. Eddy had warned the outgoing party against giving the sufferers as much food as they might want, but on seeing them, the tender-hearted men could not deny their tearful begging for more. One of the relief was kept busy until dawn preparing food which the rest gave to the enfeebled emigrants. This overdose of kindness made its victims temporarily very ill, but caused no lasting harm. Early on the morning of January 18, Mr. Ritchie, Johnson, Varro, and Kaiser, equipped with horses and other necessaries, hurried away to bring in the refugees, together with their comrades who had gone on before. By ten o'clock that night, the whole of the forlorn hope were safe in the homes of their benefactors. Mr. Ritchie declared that he and his party had retraced Mr. Eddy's track six miles by the blood from his feet, and that they could not have believed that he had traveled that eighteen miles if they themselves had not passed over the ground in going to his discouraged companions. End of chapter 9